This podcast represents the views of the hosts and not the University of Texas at Austin. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. For more, visit lbj.utexas.edu. Welcome and thanks for joining us for our Eye on the Ledge, the LBJ School's podcast series on the Texas Legislature. My name is Sherry Greenberg, and I'm a professor of practice at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at UT Austin. I served in the Texas House of Representatives from 1991 to 2001, and I currently serve on the boards of Austin Smart City Alliance and the Austin Forum of Technology and Society. I'm here with Larry Gonzalez of Push Blackwell Strategies, a veteran public servant and former member of the Texas House of Representatives with more than 25 years of experience here in Texas. To say that Texas's 87th legislative session has been a wild ride is an understatement indeed. But let's start off by setting the scene. Texas lawmakers walked into the Capitol in January for a session unlike any they'd ever known or could have expected. The COVID-19 pandemic had forced legislative offices to close and staff to work from home, which set things up to be rocky right off the bat. With members and staff having worked remotely, they had no time or ability to get to know each other or develop the kind of personal relationships that are fundamental to trust and communication and governing in a legislative body. We know that the Texas legislature is a body that functions on trust and on relationships. So I think, Larry, it's fair to say that we started off with a session that was set up for a communications breakdown. Is that a fair description? It's absolutely fair. And what's interesting is we knew this was going to happen. Our colleagues across the state, across the country, in other states, they do meet year round. Right. And so and so I had a lot of colleagues that I've met over the years who were functioning during COVID when it was complete, you know, shutdown. So I thought that Texas uh, would have a eight-month, nine-month opportunity to look at best practices and see what other states did to resolve these communication issues, right? Open government, transparency issues were some criticisms. And I told all my clients, look, here's the deal. When we come in January, we, we would have learned by now what works and what doesn't work across the country. The problem is nobody else figured it out first. <laughs> So, yeah, so we walked into January. There were no best practices. We, we couldn't look around the state and see what everybody else had done. So we were starting from scratch, just like everybody else was, uh, an amazing eight, nine months later. And it just set up some really serious, I guess, communication breakdown in how we communicate. You know, not all offices were closed. It varied, right? There were some offices. Right, it did. It, it, did. Varied, it varied greatly. And even, remember, the House administration took a poll of incoming members to this legislature and asked them, when will you feel comfortable being back in the building? And it ranged, it ranged from let's go day one, fully operational to I will be there and my staff will be there when a vaccine is in place. Right. And let's not forget with 150 members, you see that kind of variation. And we saw a big difference between the House and the Senate, right, Larry? Oh, ab- absolutely. Uh, I mean, even 
you know, the House adopted certain rules for, for the procedures of the floor and for what the members had to provide every day. I mean, the Senate, you had to have a, a, a negative COVID wristband to enter right. the gallery, right? So even in Texas, between the, each chamber, the rules were very different. Yeah, I want to focus on that for a moment because I think this set the stage for a situation where um, you couldn't form those relationships, right, uh, between members of the House and um, between members of the Senate. But it also set the stage for what we saw, which were really a continuing dysfunction um, at a level we probably have not seen in recent years between the House and the Senate. Um, not to mention, you know, uh, mass, uh, as you said, testing, um, politicization among House members, among Senate members, between the House and the Senate, just from the beginning regarding how they were going to conduct uh, business uh, during uh, COVID-19. And then, of course, we had the physical separations. You don't have members of the House who have the ability to get together for lunch and you know, after hours, you don't have members of the Senate who can do that. You don't have members of the House and Senate together. Um, their staffs, um, we know from experience that that's very important for the staff to be able to form those relationships. Right, Larry? Absolutely. And what this is such a it's such a people business and it's such a communication person to person business that when individuals are siloed in their offices, doors locked, um, even the staff, to your point, doesn't get to know each other. The members didn't have that first 60 days of dinners and lunches and being able to learn more about each other personally, their background, their family situation, kind of what their experiences are, what their strengths are, what their concerns are. And so you didn't have this, you know, kind of cross-pollination of conversations in the building. What that means is, when you get to the difficult votes and you get to the difficult conversations, which will inevitably happen, they were strangers talking to each other. You just right. didn't know each other. And that's such a huge point to make for the people listening is this is a relationship business. And when you're sitting across from microphones, front mic, back mic from each other, and you don't know each other, it's a much more difficult conversation to have. It is. It's based on relationships and on trust. And so we had barriers uh, from the beginning, not just physical, but these barriers with communications and with not having those relationships and that trust build up. And then, of course, what did we see in February? We saw the storm, right, Uri? We saw what I call Stormgate, uh, the power outage. And uh, that took an enormous amount of time and resources from the legislative session, not to mention that people... Um, members and their constituents, uh, many, many of them across the state were without uh, power and heat and water, some of them for a week, some of them without water for even longer. Uh, we did have one interesting side note to that situation, which was that we had a fleeting moment of Democrats and Republicans in the legislature joining together and rallying around their constituents um, in these hearings that we had in both the House and the Senate uh, regarding the storm. Um, and we had, I think, an atmosphere of cooperation um, regarding rallying around the storm, but it was, it was fleeting. The diversity of Texas has always been its strength and also the difficulty. Right. When you're when right. you have such a vast state 
and the priorities and the issues affecting rural versus suburban versus urban versus South Texas. It's, it's so great that you have, you sometimes have a, a difficulty having a conversation, but what the storm did, the storm put everybody on the same level because everybody got hit. Now, I guess you could argue the guys not in ERCOT, El Paso and kind of East Texas, maybe not, but for the most part, it put every member on the same field, which is we have to fix this. And that was uh, encouraging to see when you had such a, a bipartisan effort of members all focused on one singular problem. That did take a good two or three weeks, took all right. the breath out of the room. I mean, it, it took all the breath out of the room. I'm not saying that it shouldn't have, but what happens is you then really, really miss those two weeks at the end. <laughs> right. Well, right. I think what you're saying is, look, there was limited oxygen in the room to begin with, just with COVID and all the barriers we talked about. Then you had several weeks of the storm. And so there was there was very little oxygen left for this uh, session. And I think that that did uh, play into what we saw as far as timing. Uh, but it also um, was a situation where you had another very pressing issue to deal with. And in fact, uh, people are still discussing uh, whether or not more legislation is needed around the storm. There was some legislation that, that passed um, and went to the governor regarding uh, weatherization and the communications uh, system, but it did not deal with uh, some of the financial issues that people's constituents um, are still facing. So we'll see what happens with that. But you brought up the diversity in Texas, and it is a very diverse state uh, by by geography, uh, by culture, race, ethnicity, um, you know, population in so many ways with the, the demographics too. And what we have seen is this continuation of, you know, state versus local, right? Um, we all know that, uh, State law supersedes local, but this, you know, uh, state uh, control versus local control. And we've also seen some, as we've discussed, opposition or conflict between the branches of government here in Texas. Um, the pandemic and the freeze, um, you know, turned these tensions, I think, into full-blown rifts um, when we look at state versus local and when we look at control between the branches of government. So we saw that during uh, COVID-19, the governor had certain um, powers and abilities regarding rules with COVID-19. So did uh, local officials. But I think that we've clearly seen backlash both from what the uh, local officials, their actions that they were able to take, county commissioners or county judges, and um, mayors, and also the governor's actions that he took. Then you have on top of that, um, the protests that we saw around uh, uh, George Floyd um, last uh, year at this time, and then uh, reactions in policing and uh, actions that have been taken in the session and, and bills that went to the governor regarding police budgets, uh, voting, and um, you know um, some actions that were taken um, by the city of Houston and others. Um, you know the motor voting and others. So there's there's been a lot that was either local control versus state control, and then add on top of that um, the feeling among some that the governor went too far with COVID, and that the legislature should uh, be able to 
rein in or at least uh, come into session after 30, 60, 90 days um, with that. So, Larry, what are some of your thoughts of, of what we've seen on these state versus local battles and also between the branches of government? It was um, extremely complicated and it wasn't necessarily consistent, um, in, in my opinion, from issue to issue. So I have always been a local control guy. I have always been a person who believes that the best decision, uh, he, he who can fight the fire best is closest to the fire, right? So if my school districts can make a decision, they should make it. If my city, my county, the state, um, depending on where it falls, I just think that that the lo- most local level possible to make those decisions and they should be held accountable by that voting jurisdiction, let's say. So the particular issues this time, though, were were so fundamental and they were so big, Sherry. Right. I mean, right. Huge. Because, huge. And because all of a sudden you're talking about the health and safety of Texas. That's to right. me, to me, to me, this breaks down into local control versus kind of state control. But, and I've always been a local control, a local control guy, like I said. But what happens in a local control issue, regardless of the issue, is that you wind up with a patchwork of bills and laws. Let's take texting while driving, right? For years, county to county, city by city, the laws were all over the place, and you never knew from one jurisdiction to the other when you were in violation of the law. And you wouldn't know, for instance, if you're traveling to a city you've never been before. So I do believe local control, but I also believe that it sets up a patchwork of legislation. I think those two premises are just solid. However, when you come into something like the health and safety of Texans, right, what is right for all of Texas? Does the state have a role in that? You know, yes, um, even though I'm a local control guy, when you're talking about a pandemic, a global pandemic, right? Not seen before. Does that elevate something to where the state has to get involved? Probably so. Probably so. Yeah, I think the question is, and and this is one that I wanted to focus on, Larry. Certainly we saw with the mask mandates some differences in opinions um, from one county or city to the other, um, between the governor, frankly, and some of the governor's uh, constituencies. Uh, but what we're seeing now is not just some, I'd say, backlash against maybe some of the measures that various um, county judges or mayors took, but against the governor himself. So what we're seeing now is backlash from a certain, I guess, part or faction of uh, the Republicans uh, that are part of the governor's constituency, a, a backlash against some of the actions that he took during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Those bills did not pass. Uh, What do you think will happen? Do you think um, that, and we'll get back to this in a minute with a special session, but do you think uh, that this was unique, seeing backlash against the governor? I think your point is is very important to make, and I want to reemphasize it, because when we say state versus local, understand that this time, the definition of state really pitted <laughs> um, like-minded groups traditionally against each other, right? So when I say right. state, when I say state, uh, the governor took that role, and by state, it meant the governor. Yes. The, legis- the legislature, which is also the state, took exception to that. 
right? right. And so even the, the local versus state argument is, is, is more difficult this time because state is defined differently by different people. And clearly, uh, there were a lot of people in the legislature who felt that they should have a say in what those executive orders look like, uh, how funds are expended during a pandemic. I mean, the legislature felt like they were left out. It is the purview of the governor uh, to do what he did by law. So it's it's complicated, yes, because uh, even even this as we define the state disagreed. disagreed. Right. So I think what you could say is that this session was unique with the pandemic, with uh, police, with voting rights, with with many of these issues, but particularly with the uh, pandemic, what you had was something that we don't typically see, and that is that these tensions turned into full-blown rifts, not just uh, between perhaps the governor and or the legislature and some county judges and mayors across the state, but a really full-blown rift between Governor Abbott and some within his own Republican Party and Governor Abbott with some in the legislature. And that, I think, also plays into something else that I wanted to um, really point out and turn our attention to, and that is the House versus the Senate and the Senate versus the House in this legislative session. You know, in the course of doing the people's business, we know that it's not always smooth, that it does, as we've said, depend on relationships um, between members of the House, between members of the Senate, but also between the Senate and the House. And every legislative session, we see a point where the House may say, the Senate's not passing and, you know, getting to enough of our bills. Or the Senate may say, the House isn't taking up enough of our bills. And both sides of the chamber have these accusations and they say that there are delays and stalling tactics. But I think it's fair to say that this session saw a new level of discord between the House and the Senate. Did you see that, Larry? You know, it, it felt that was the case very, very late, right? Um, right, you know, right. And, and again, to your point, you you always see that um, happening, right? There's always a House versus Senate. You're holding our bills hostage. Right. Uh, you know, the House adjourned for, for a couple of days uh, there That's at the very right. end that the Senate took uh, a, a lot of offense to. Um, if you look at the House calendars, I mean, they, they as always, eventually, you know, get that part of the work done. The Senate took great offense to that. I know there was one clip where one of the House chairmen, you know, were on the Senate floor and, you know, the Lieutenant Governor saw him and you know, said from the podium uh, to the chairman, uh, uh, the displeasure yes. of the Senate, right? And that was kind of unprecedented as well. Look, it, it happens every session. Uh, a little heightened this time? I think so. I mean, just because, again, of the difficulty of that time of session, the difficulty of the relationship and the difficulty of the of the subject matter that was being discussed. It was tough. It was tough. Right. It came, yes, it came towards the end. And I don't think that there was any more delaying on one side versus the other, but I think there was greater discord. And it did come uh, towards the end. And so that brings us to what were some of the biggest fights about in this legislative session? And um, what we saw is a return to something we didn't see last session, but the session before, and that was some of these hot button uh, social issues, right? Some of the, the red meat. Um, 
you know, we had a lot of critical issues to consider this session, whether it was healthcare or the storm or education, uh, lots of high profile issues. But we also saw a return to these high profile and very emotional social issues, including abortion, guns, transgender issues. Uh, why did, did you see that, Larry? Yes. You know, it's two things. One, it's where we are as a country in the debating of, of, of some really uh, uh, you know, serious issues, uh, controversial issues, if you will, as well. But also, you know what, to me, it's also a direct result of a lot of um, uh, social media, uh, the, the, the idea that, that there's so much information uh, out there, not always accurate. I mean, you know, I think, I think accurate information on social media rolls at a certain pace. Uh, I feel that inaccurate information on social media rolls at an exponential pace. It seems so hard to get in front of the things that, that are not true. It does. It seems so hard to get in front of all the misinformation or disinformation right. uh, because people can choose their own echo chamber, right? Right. And in, and in my office, we call that chasing ghosts, right? Yes. Like I, can, I can defend any vote that I make. I can't defend a vote that doesn't exist or that something that didn't happen. I mean, how do you, how do you prove that, right? I, I, yes, I had the same issue. So I think social media really pushes a lot of these buttons uh, harder than they have in, in, in the past. But let's be clear. I mean, just because one group thinks that these social issues aren't important or aren't a priority doesn't mean another group uh, agrees with them, right? Because, because there are voters who do think that those issues are a priority and should be important. And so I think from a leadership perspective, you have to consider the entire state. Again, it's diversity, and yes. de and develop a calendar and a floor calendar that you know addresses what um, they feel the people of Texas want. And again, different people um, they disagree on 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 what's important. But but you did see some really really difficult conversations. Uh, it's it's it, it's hard to watch sometimes when there's such good people on both sides who fundamentally disagree and. It's really, really hard, Sherry. You've been there. I've been there. I've been there. Yes. I've been it, there. There are some really tough votes you have to make. Um, well, not only tough votes, but emotions run very high. And I do, uh, I do think that we saw not only the misinformation and disinformation from social media, but what we saw is that Texas is not immune from what happens in the rest of the country. And I do think that the national... Uh, conversations, the the frankly discord and dysfunction that we saw nationally, um, we saw bleed over into this legislative session, and that we saw now um, amidst all the other issues that the state of Texas had to deal with, these hot button issues coming to the forefront this session. And as we've mentioned, there was already limited oxygen in the session, and we know that these are very emotional issues that take a lot of time. But, you know, I'll, 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 I'll say this, Sherry. Look, I, I always believe that every elected member there is placed there by their constituency to represent that district, okay? I was there to represent House District 52. That, that was my job. Yes. That, that, that's who sends me there. That's who I'm accountable to. So my freshman year, uh, there was a wonderful, wonderful colleague of mine uh, of the opposite party. She was a Democrat. She was my deskmate. 
and we would have these long conversations and we agreed on probably not that much. Do I think she was a wonderful member for her district? Absolutely. And she would say the same thing about me. Now we couldn't vote for each other's districts, right? But as long as you are representing your district, as long as you are standing firm for the beliefs and values and ideals of the people who sent you there, I have zero problem with how anybody votes, I, regardless of party. If you're there and you're voting for your constituency, I get it. There were several times where I would sit at my desk and you'd be listening to this front microphone, back microphone exchange. It certainly wasn't a conversation that I could agree with, but I understood why they were doing it. I understood who they were standing up for and total respect, total respect for that conversation. I think, however, that that mentality um, is lost. Right, right. I, I agree with you that it is a representative body. We were both state representatives. That's different than the judiciary where judges opine on the law. So you're you're voted as a state representative. Now, sometimes you do have the question of how, you know, at what point does leading right on a certain issue take precedence over representing but that's a whole nother issue you you are elected as a as a representative and one thing that i wanted to add larry i remember when i was first elected um somebody who was very wise and i think this was probably the the night before session at some event um he said to me sherry look around you'll see a whole lot of members you know who are very different and you'll say, hmm, I wonder how this person or that person ended up here. And he said, Sherry, if you go look at their districts, what will you see? You will see a whole lot of people just like them. Absolutely. So that brings that brings up that it Absolutely. is a representative body. Um, but something that you said, just said now really resonated with me. And it gets back to the times and what we're seeing nationally and the the discord. And that is that the type of discourse that um, that we're seeing uh, now. And um, th that I do think um, has changed over the years. But I do want to uh, note that the final night uh, of the uh, session, or it was the day before the session actually ended, it was the last night, as you will recall, for the House to pass a Senate bill, um, ended with um, Democrats um, walking out and breaking a quorum over the, the uh, Senate Bill 7, which was the, uh, we'll call it the voting bill. Um, this was quite a dramatic night. It was preceded by the uh, Senate voting out um, uh, what came out of a conference committee. As you know, when a bill has two different versions, the House votes out a bill and the Senate votes out a bill and they're not the same, you can't have two versions of the same bill as law. So the Speaker of the House appoints five members of his choosing to a conference committee and the Lieutenant Governor appoints uh, five members of his choosing to a conference committee. And those members um, go into a back room. That's the way it works. And typically they can only make changes in the bill where one version is different from the other. However, in this situation, they added language to the bill that was not in either version. And at about, I think it came out of conference committee at about 6 a.m. in the morning, the Senate had a vote. It came over to the House and was before the House on that uh, next to last day of the session. And then 
the House had a vote on a resolution to allow the bill to come to the floor, even though things had been added in conference committee that were in neither version. Um, that, that really set the stage, wouldn't you say, for this very dramatic night? This has always been a source of conversation on the House floor, which, which again, you, you explained it correctly. The conferees get together. There's a conference uh, committee uh, assigned to, uh, you know, address the differences. Right. Now, now, now normally, uh, under rules, the only thing conferenceable are items that exist in either version of the bill. Okay. That's right. But, but the rules do allow for the inclusion and discussion of things not previously contemplated. What that is, it's called outside the bounds, right? You're going yes. outside the bounds. And that the res- was the resolution correct, that came to the floor. Correct, correct. Yes. The, the resolution that you talk about is a resolution for outside the bounds, allowing the conferees to discuss these things that had not been dus- uh, discussed before. Now, the resolution is supposed to lay out all the changes uh, of, of, of new items, right, of new items that are included in the conference committee report that were not in either version of the bill. And there were many, wasn't, wasn't, weren't there, there like was, 22 or 23? There were, there were quite a few. To me, yes. to me, the question is then how much time does the body, each body, have to review the resolution uh, of the outside the bounds? Normally, this happens every single session, and, and you know this, as part Absolutely. of the budget, as part of the right. budget, right? It's That's always right. a part of the budget. So, so this is not something that is unfamiliar to the members, but at this late date, with time running out, with the number of changes uh, that were made, that was the, the difficulty for a bunch of members was not having the ability to read the resolution, the outside the bounds resolution in time before they were voting. So That's right. It came, I think it came over out of the Senate, like 630 in the morning. There were hundreds and hundreds of pages. There were, I think, 67 new, over 22, 23 changes uh, without time uh, to review it. And yes, that very much, as you noted, um, was a sticking point for um, a lot of the members. But now, but, but, but to be clear, Sherry, so on, on social media, again, you see all kinds of things and, 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 and people say all kinds of things. There was so much accusation that, 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 that what they had done was illegal or unprecedented. And there were all these terms being, being thrown around. And I was like, look, I mean, I can point to the rules and I can show you that. Oh, yes. That, 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 that these are the rules. But, but, but when social media takes over and starts the accusations of illegal activity and, and there should be rules to govern this, well, there are. There well, are. And, and this, is, this is an important point because the Speaker of the House followed the rules. Okay, the rules allowed for a vote on this resolution to go outside the bounds. The rules also allowed for what the Democrats did to leave the floor, take their keys, break the quorum. And the Speaker of the House stood by the Democratic members, uh, made a statement saying that they the rules allow for them to to walk out and break the quorum. So the, the Speaker of the House and both of those stood by the rules. There were a lot of changes, and um, this would be a, a whole nother discussion. But, um, you know, there were a lot of specifics in this bill that, that people um, very much um, debated. One was, um, you know, voters with disabilities being required to prove they can't make it to the polls. Um, county election officials not being able to keep polling places open late, 
Um, there were discussions about poll watchers, not allowing drive-through voting, um, dealing, you know, changes with local voting um, election officials, um, distribution of polling places was argued. But a couple that came in late were um, the what we call the souls to the polls, and that was a change uh, on the Sunday before the election day and early voting, stating that the polls would not open until 1 p.m. So that was uh, one change that we saw at the end that was uh, hotly debated. And another was uh, when a, a new provision allowing judges to overturn an election uh, with a claim of fraud. So I think that, that those were two that were very hotly uh, debated and uh, that also played into the uh, uh, breaking the quorum because those were ones that were added. Um, but I think it is it is very important to note um, that the Speaker of the House um, allowed the, the rules to work, whether it was the vote on that resolution to go outside the bounds or whether it was the members of the Democratic members of the House uh, walking out and breaking the quorum, which put an end to the, the session, because by midnight, uh, those bills had to come out of those Senate bills out of the House. So that brings up another very interesting uh, wrinkle this time, Larry, which is special session. You know, Texas is somewhat unique. We're not alone, but somewhat unique in that what we call the regular session of the Texas legislature's biennial. It's every other year. It's set out in the Constitution. It runs from roughly the, the middle of January till, you know, May 31st or June 1st. And that is the regular session. However, the governor and only the governor can set a special session, can call a special session. A special session lasts 30 days. The governor can call more than one. They can be back to back. That certainly happened when I was serving in the legislature. Another unique feature is not only is the governor the only one who can determine and state that we're going to have a special session, but unlike the regular session, the governor determines what the members of the House and Senate can take up during that special session, which is the opposite of the regular session. The regular session, it is solely the members of the legislature who file bills. And then, of course, the speaker and lieutenant governor and calendars committee or the rules of the Senate determine what comes to the floor. But in the special session, the governor determines uh, what can be taken up. So we know that there's going to be a special session in the fall, probably in October, um, for redistricting, because every 10 years after the census, uh, everyone across the country, all the legislative bodies, you know, county commissioners, anybody where people are elected by a geographical area, by a district, have to reapportion one person, one vote, have roughly the, the same number of people in the district. And they do that by redrawing the boundaries, by redistricting. That could not happen during this regular session because we didn't have the census numbers. We're getting those in a few months. So we know that there will be a special session in the fall, probably October, for redistricting. But a new uh, battle, I would say, has emerged actually between members, the three Republican leaders in Texas, the uh, governor, the lieutenant governor, and the Speaker of the House regarding having other items added to that special session, or perhaps having other special sessions before then uh, to address some of these other 
issues that didn't pass. And some of them are those hot button issues, voting, bail reform, uh, transgender issues, not allowing local governments uh, to lobby the legislature. Do you think uh, we will see a special session regarding these? I think there's so much uh, to unpack what you just said that is that's interesting is that I have always been I'm a rules guy. Give me the rules and I'll play by the rules. If the yes. rules need to be changed, well, then we can change the rules, right? I mean, they, they do it every session, right? They determine the house rules and set up rules. So, Certainly. But, but I'm a I rules always, guy. I always say that learning the rules gives you an extra edge. And look, I use points of order, and that's part of the rules. That's part of the rules. That's that's how that body operates and has, that's has right. always been. And in, and in this particular case, we don't have a – during the regular session, we don't have a strong governor type of um, – uh, type of system. No, our constitution, in fact, is a weak governor. That's system. A, that's exactly right. Comma until you get right. to a special session, right? Because then yes. he is the most powerful, right? Because he alone decides when and what's going to be discussed. Again, to the point of you represent your constituencies, the other elected members have their opinions and express their opinions and what their priorities are for special session, and you can float them up to the governor as ideas, but it is his decision and his decision only on when and what. Those are the rules, right? So, I mean, you're going to see posturing by a lot of other members who who just want to make sure that their constituents hear them on what they think their priorities are. But in this case, it's up to Governor Abbott to decide what needs to be heard. Remember, um, I guess after the 17 session, I guess 2017 session, there were 20 items added to one called special session uh, for 30 days. I've also right. seen it, at, as have you, I've also seen it where it's, you know, I think under Governor Perry early on, maybe uh, maybe 13, there was a special session on transportation. There was a special session on this issue. I mean, it was, it was clearly, you have 30 days members to figure out this one issue. What Abbott did was, hey, here's 30, up to 30 days. Here are 20 issues, right? This was last, this was last summer that you're speaking of, yes. I yes. think I think I was still a member um, during that, so it, so it, it may have been the that, that's why I said the twentieth the summer of twenty seventeen. Oh, okay, because I, because I was still because, a member for that one. Right, because after last session, I want to point out that we did see um, a two two years ago after that session, we did see that summer special session with many items on it. So what what you're talking about, Larry? Correct, and in and in twenty and also in twenty I think thirteen. Governor Perry called us back three times, right, on on transportation issues. And, you know, the body needs to each chamber needs to determine you know, how they're going to handle uh, those issues. What's interesting to me about a special session is and this is why I'm OK with redistricting not happening in a regular session, because, as you know, during redistricting, this is a I mean, this is a intra party person versus person. My lines versus your lines. I mean, this I do everybody know. against I do each know. other. Yes. I, yes. Mean, I, I mean, my my first session of the legislature um, was a doozy, to use a technical term. We had redistricting, and the state was under court orders for you know prisons and uh, for uh, education and for so many other things. And and it was unique in that. It was the only time I know of that the legislature did not pass during the regular session the one bill that must pass. And what is that? The budget. It did not happen. And we were called back into special session during the summer immediately to pass the budget. 
the one bill that has to pass. And then we had back-to-back special sessions over other issues, including school finance. Then we were called back into a special session, um, something I remember uh, quite well because um, I was expecting my uh, uh, a child any moment. We were called back into special session uh, repeatedly to deal with uh, school finance and other issues. So it is not unique to have special sessions. It's not unique to even have them back to back or to have um, multiple issues on a special session. But I think the point to get back to here is no matter what the speaker might think or feel, or the lieutenant governor might think or feel, it is the governor and only the governor who can set the special session and determine what the members can can take up during that special session. And that's totally the opposite from the regular session. Well, and and I like, I, I'm okay with redistricting being in a special session because, as you know, that is such a difficult process for all 150 yes. members that what happens is, and of course I did this in 2013, uh, I mean uh, uh, 2011. What happens is other legislation winds up getting uh, held hostage. It winds up getting used as bait. It winds up getting, you know, uh, used as leverage. So if I had this super, super, and this, this happened to me, super, super important legislation that you want done, but somebody wants these three precincts out of your district, right? And so right. You, start, you start seeing this little leverage game being played. So at least if redistricting is in a special session in and of itself. The focus is on those lines and what that body will, 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 will ultimately look like. Absolutely, Larry. And I like that it's, that, it's, that it's uninterrupted by other bait switching, being held hostage pieces of legislation. And you bring up an interesting point, which I saw too. And not only does redistricting take up so much time and create animosity, but it doesn't just create animosities between people of different parties, between Democrats and Republicans. It creates animosities between people in a delegation, whether it's Harris County or Travis County, because they're they're fighting over the lines within their own delegation. They are. Who wants which properties and who wants to uh, look, people people have turf and they're trying to protect it as incumbents. That's just a fact. It also Absolutely. brings it brings back a memory to me too between delegations. When when we were doing redistricting in Travis County, when I was in the legislature, all the members of Travis County got together and we said we're going to agree amongst ourselves. We don't want to have you know, dysfunction within our delegation. We don't want to have a fight on the floor of the house. Let's just, you know, let's just agree among ourselves. And so we did. And we said, we in Travis County have agreed, you know, we had to, everybody had to give up some things, but we agreed. And um, so that was in the bill, the redistricting bill that came to the floor of the house. When it came to the floor of the house, though, there was a change uh, that had been made. And not... And, and there was an amendment, not not by uh, by us, but by somebody um, from another, you know, who lived elsewhere. And the change was actually to my district. And um, it actually would have made my district a little, I guess, better or easier for me because I originally had a, you know, a swing district of 50-50. And it had to change during redistricting because it was vastly overpopulated. But this amendment would have made uh, my district probably clearly better for me and somebody else's district in my delegation worse for them. And so I think people thought that I would 
um, support them on this oh, amendment. Okay. Yeah. And in fact, I did not. I opposed it because I said, this is exactly what we in Travis County wanted to avoid, right? We agreed on our districts. And even though, yes, this would make my district better for me, I'm going to oppose this amendment. And we did defeat it. I remember in, in, 20, in 2011, if I'm remembering this correctly, we were on the House. This is a special session, and we were going through redistricting, and, and there was uh, some disagreement in the Harris County delegation. And essentially, the speaker says, okay, Harris County, you're going to go into this conference room. You're not going to walk out until you've all agreed on the map, right? So, right. so the rest of us went to the lounge, and we watched the NBA yes. playoffs for hours, right? We were just and watching. this was this was Harris <laughs> County, right? Yeah, yeah, and we so, were just in the we were in the lounge watching basketball, waiting for Harris County to come out with uh, with their map. <laughs> so this is not you, you, a unique situation with Harris County, Larry, because the same thing happened when I was in the legislature, and uh, Harris County came uh, to the floor. There was not agreement, and it was all done on the floor of the House. Oh, well, man. some things apparently, Larry, uh, don't change, but this was certainly. Um, uh, quite a, a unique uh, session of the Texas legislature. Uh, we knew it would be with COVID and for some other reasons, but uh, there were things that we couldn't predict uh, also. And uh, it's clear that we're going to have at least one special session. We'll see if we have more. As we've noted, that is a, a, a power that rests solely with uh, our governor. And um, for now, uh, we're in a wait and see on those special sessions or session. Larry, thank you so much for joining me today. And thanks to everyone who tuned in for this conversation and for the other episodes in our Texas legislature series. Please visit lbj.utexas.edu to find all of our Eye on the Ledge content. Thank you, Larry. And thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you very much. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. To learn more, visit lbj.utexas.edu and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the LBJ School. Thank you for listening.